Welcome to The Bridge. I'm so glad that you've joined us for our weekend services. Um, when I was in junior high, uh, I was a very troubled young man. Growing up in the church, I knew what I was supposed to be doing, but I wasn't pulling it off. Uh, I was struggling in every arena of life, and um, I would say that I, I changed who I was, or tried to change who I was, depending on what I thought people's expectations of me were. And uh, I would try to act a certain way at home. I would try and act a certain way at church. I would try and act a certain way at, uh, at school and in the, at the playground uh, when I played with my friends. And, uh, and, and ultimately, uh, I had very few friends when I was in junior high, uh, hardly any at all, and uh, had no one that respected me. I didn't respect myself. Uh, what was wrong with me was that there was a sin that was growing in me and a fallenness that was growing in me that I couldn't control. And it manifested itself in this hypocritical um, reaction where I would pretend to be something, but I was actually something else. And, um, you know, words that come to mind, two-faced, uh, backstabber, turncoat, chameleon, a hypocrite, one who changes who he is or pretends he's something he's not. And, um, and the one that was maybe the most difficult was the church one, where I would go to church and try to keep up the, uh, the idea that I was a good follower of Jesus Christ as much as a junior high boy can be, uh, to try to be pleasing to a person but I uh, knew always that I wasn't pleasing to God, I wasn't pleasing to myself. And my prayers were often, I am so sorry, God. I am so sorry that I am failing you or, I, you know, I can't replay my prayers except for that one prayer that turned everything when I gave up all to Christ and he changed my life. But Jesus now goes after, in this passage in Luke 11, 37 to 54, uh, the hypocritical religious leaders of his day. And many that look at this see him as the enemy of the religious leaders, the one who is fighting against them and their presentation religiously. But actually, I see it as Jesus inviting the hypocritical religious leaders to change. We see in this passage where Jesus is not two-faced. He speaks the truth directly to them. He does it publicly. He's done it privately up to this point. He's spoken to them mostly to this point kindly, encouraging them to look at their lives and look at their failures and, and address them. But as, they're, as they dig their heels in and oppose Jesus privately, Jesus now brings it to the fore. And, uh, and in this, we see Jesus not being a hypocrite. Jesus being exactly who he is and speaking the truth directly to the person that needs to have it spoken to. And in so invites the hypocritical religious leaders to change. We find our passage in Luke 11, 37 to 54. And I'll begin in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he had not first washed before dinner. Uh, in this, we see Jesus refusing to do, choosing not to do what would have been normal. 
It would have been a normal expectation that a religious leader would wash his hands before the meal. Now, we would say now, especially in COVID-19, of course you wash your hands before you eat. You wash your hands before you greet people. You wash your hands if you shake hands. Uh, that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about religious purity. And the idea is that it's a it is a uh, acknowledgement before God that I need to be clean and and I'm not going to make others unclean by not, not by potentially coming in with dirty hands, uh, spiritually dirty hands, if you will, that come from death and come from sin. So he is supposed to have washed his hands. The problem is this wasn't the law of God. This was the law of man. In Exodus 30, 19 through 21, the priests are commanded to wash their hands only prior to giving an offering. And it was symbolic. It's a symbolic washing that was done so that they would be able to declare that we are clean. We are clean before God as we offer these offerings. But Jesus is looking at the heart, not just at the hands. And so, really, in this moment, by choosing not to wash his hands, he is irritating the hypocritical religious leaders. He's putting a finger on the problem. You want me to wash my hands and follow your rules, and then, when I follow your rules and your system, your religious systems, then you'll declare me clean. You'll be the one that says I'm okay, spiritually. And God never asked for this. So they have this rule, these guardrails that are put in place to make sure that there is cleanness in the camp, if you will, and Jesus ignores it to point out the uncleanness in the camp. The Pharisees extended what the priests were only called to do before offerings to everyone before every meal. There was supposed to be a cleansing, and, and please don't get lost in the germs idea. This has nothing to do with germs and physical illness. This has to do with spiritual illness and the religious leader, the Pharisee, feeling he's cleaner than Jesus. And Jesus is about to highlight his filth. The fact that he is a hypocritical religious leader. Jesus irritates the hypocritical religious leaders, bringing the bringing the conversation to the forefront to point out and to invite these leaders to do it differently, to stop being legalistic and start being God-centered, loving God and loving their neighbors. Well, in verse 39, Jesus identifies the hypocritical religious leaders. He does it publicly. He has been invited into a meal. He goes and he sits at this meal with the Pharisees. And, and having been there, he has now pressed the point on cleanliness. And in verse 39, it says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within and Behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. This is 
uh, as harsh as it seems, Jesus is calling them out as hypocrites and, and he's calling them out. Maybe you think he'd go after the Romans or maybe you think he'd go after the Gentiles or those who have avoided the temple and have not been following through on the law. He actually goes after the legalistic leaders of the, of the temple, the, the conservative right of the temple, the Pharisees who followed the law to the nth degree from their perspective. And he's now pointing out how dangerous it is the way that they're leading this hypocritical religion. These religious actions without love and without mercy and without justice. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You are hiding the truth that inside of you there is something broken and there's something flawed. It would have been far better for me to go to church and say, I have a problem. There is something sinful inside of me that is causing me to swear and causing me to steal and causing me to lie and to cheat. And I can't control it and, I, and I'm trying to hide it. I have a serious problem and in that we have such help in the scriptures and such help from God. The, the man or the woman that comes to God honestly and stands before the people of God and says, I am flawed. I am failing. I desperately need Christ. I desperately need help. Well, these priests were doing the opposite. They were doing what so many of us are prone to do, which is try to look as if we're better than we are. They clean the outside of the cup. They make themselves look nice, and then when they show up to the synagogue, or they show up to the temple, or they show up in the community, they look like they're doing a great job of following God. Surely, if God loves anybody, he loves the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have said that, and the people who followed the Pharisees would have said that. These, are, these people are so committed to following God, and yet they are the ones that Jesus is frustrated with and is calling out. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Come and give what's inside to God. Come and give your heart to God. Come and show up in humility and say, I'm desperately broken, and here is my heart, God. In that Fateful, on that fateful evening when I gave my heart to God, that is basically what I prayed. I can't fix this. Here's my heart. And as a pastor, uh, one of the things that I have been called out for or criticized for is the fact that I admit that I struggle and admit that there are things that are flawed in me. And, and to a degree, my, criti my critics are right. The gospel, I should be prepared to proclaim that God has cleansed me and that God is working on the inside. But I desire to be cleansed more and I never want to stand before God pretending I'm more than I'm not in front of other people. I want to admit where my failures are, not just so that I won't be judged by Christ, but I want help. I want to come to church and I want you to be able to come to church and be able to receive the grace that God gives freely in Christ. I want you to know that the gospel is for all of us. If the gospel can save me, it can save you. And the gospel can fix my problems. It can fix your problems. And I don't want to stop cleansing the inside of the cup. How about you? Or do you come to church trying to look as if you have it together? Wanting people around you to think you're really great 
super religious, honoring God when in actuality what's in your heart is broken and desperate. Give alms from what is within and behold, everything will be clean for you. In verse 42, he begins a series of woes. Now, woes are a curse and a warning. They're the promise of a curse that if you will repent, you can return this away. You, you don't need to be cursed by this. You don't need to have this curse follow, but Jesus is clearly saying that you are in danger of being cursed, and it is an invitation. It's a warning of, against catastrophe that is coming if you don't change. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. The scriptures never call out particularly to tithe mint and rue and every herb. In Exodus 30, 19, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 14, 22 and 23, grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn from your flocks were to be tithed. But here they add to it and have gone the extra mile thinking that they will be really pleasing to God because they tithe even mint and rue and every herb. But they neglect justice and the love of God. The love of God, Deuteronomy 6, is the primary command. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the secondary command. Justice, Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires of us. He doesn't require that we clean the outside of the cup and look really religious and look like our piety, put, play out our piety before man so that everybody can see the length of our prayers and, the, and how much we tithe and how much we have given to God. Instead, they see our humility and our love for God and our love for justice. Pride is a result that I've seen in religious circles for those, I don't know why we're prone to pride, but we're prone to think we're better than others. We get drunk with the theology that we know and we think somehow we understand God better than other people and we understand the Bible better than other people and we think God likes us because of that. And the reality is it's the application of the scriptures that shows how well we understand it. And Jesus is saying that you should have taken care of the primary commands of love of God and justice for others. And in a day when we're discussing what justice means, it's hard work to get to real justice, real truth. But as Christ followers, as God followers, it's our job to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That's the right application of conservative Christianity, not arrogance and pride and judgment. Woe to you Pharisees in verse 43, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. God help us if our idea of church and our idea of faith in Jesus Christ is that it somehow promotes our business and promotes our standing in the community, promotes our standing in the church. That somehow 
we receive more honor and praise because we are Christ followers when in actuality our goal should be to give all praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ and we should be servants of others just as Jesus served us. We should humble ourselves before each other. That's the Christian way, not pride. Are we prone, are you prone to love the best seats in the church and greetings in the marketplaces? And finally, verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This for a first generation, for a first century Jewish man, would have been a horrible thing to hear. You're like an unmarked grave, making people unclean just by being near you. And it's because it's unmarked, people don't know that you're making them unclean. But the pride, the arrogance, the judgment, the lack of love, the lack of justice, all makes others unclean because the expectation is that the Pharisees are the ones who are most godly. How many people have turned away from Jesus because of Christians' application of their faith? They look at how Christians act and treat others and they say, well, I don't want any part of that. When that isn't representing Christ and his love of the lost well. Jesus was deemed, he was called derisively a friend of sinners. Are you called derisively a friend of sinners? Do you love those who are hurting? Do you care for those who are lost? Do you seek those who don't know how to get back to God? Do you make a way for them to return instead of putting blockades in them, in front of them, to get to God? The rules and the systems that the Pharisees had put in place, this tithing and following cleanliness rules and the laws that they added made it harder for the average person to get to God. When they should have been declaring that if I can get to God, so can you. There is grace at the throne room of God for me and for you. Jesus identifies the hypocritical religious leaders. And I have to ask, are we identified with them? In what way am I a hypocritical religious leader? In what way have I washed the outside of the cup? In what way have I hidden the sin within? In what way have I failed to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with my God? In what way? Am I not loving God, but loving myself primarily? Well, Jesus identifies the hypocritical religious leaders. He irritates them. It starts the conversation. And now Jesus insults the hypocritical religious leaders. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. <laughs> the, lawyer, the lawyer says, uh, you know, you're, you're insulting the Pharisees. I get that. But you're insulting us too. First of all, who are the lawyers? The lawyers aren't like lawyers for us today. Those were the ones who studied the law of God and determined how others might follow it. They would set up the rules. They were scholars uh, and they would look at what was written about the word of God, what is written in the word of God. They would compare about it, it with other writings from the word of God and they became experts in the law. And as experts in the law, they would have assumed that they're in good standing with God, that they are pleasing to God. And absolutely we see in the word of God that the law and the prophets and the poetry of the Old Testament is 
a gift from God for us. It's a lamp and it's a light to us that guides our path. Uh, we should love the Word of God. We should, we should be filled with the Word of God and we should be humbled by the Word of God. And it should turn us to a love for God. Well, the lawyer says, you know, you insult us. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry I insulted you. I didn't mean to. He says in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You're deciding what people need to do, and yet you don't take responsibility for doing it yourself. You are laying weight on people, weights on people. How do we do that today? How do we as Christians lay weights on people? Well, in some ways, we look at our gifts as the gifts that God is most pleased with, and we expect other people to exert gifts in, in kind with ours. Those who serve want more servants. Those who lead think leading is the greatest gift. Those who preach think preaching is the greatest gift, and maybe they're the most pleasing to God. Those who pray think prayer is the greatest gift, and everyone should pray. Don't get me wrong. But some pray and pray and pray and, and think that in doing so, there's an arrogance that attends it that somehow they're close to God and they can judge other people. How do we lay burdens on others? Well, we judge them privately. We arrogantly dismiss them as less pleasing to God. We demote them as less important in the church. And Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. You put expectations on them that you haven't put on yourself. You expect them to be able to be Christian even though they weren't raised in a Christian home. You expect them to be able to give even though they haven't had a job or they've struggled financially. You blame them for struggling financially although you haven't walked in their shoes and been concerned with what they're going through. And we lay burdens on them and we're not even willing to lift with our own fingers the burdens that they bear. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you, and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What is he saying? The generation that Jesus grew up in believed that they would not have put the prophets to death. They honor the prophets who were put to death. They proclaimed the word of God and they fancied that they too were proclaiming the word of God. And when they declared that they wouldn't have put the prophets to death, Jesus says, you have no idea. Because right in front of you is the actual Messiah. Jesus Christ is standing in front of them preaching and declaring a judgment from God that is coming and instead of responding in humility like they declared they would have if the prophets were of old were there, 
the ones that they honored, they're actually going to conspire how to put Jesus to death. And all of the judgment of the generations that preceded that put prophets to death will not compare to the judgment of putting the Messiah to death. Not hearing the warning of the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect priest, the perfect son of God. He was in their midst and they actually look to put him to death. And he's warning them right now, whoa, he's telling them of a judgment that's coming. Repent now, turn. Stop being so hypocritical and stop being so self-serving in your presentation. He refers to the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah. Who are they? Well, Cain killed Abel and Zechariah would have been talked about in the in Chronicles, which would have been potentially the last book of their canon at the time. And looking biblically, Abel to Zechariah, all those who were righteously bringing the word of God and were declaring what was true of God were put to death by those who were unrighteous. And that blood is crying out. And this generation that he's talking to is going to be charged with the blood of the righteous, namely Jesus. From A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah, all of those who were killed, whose side are you on? Whose side have you chosen? Finally, the last woe in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The lawyers, the teachers of the law, saw themselves as opening the door so that people would understand the word of God. And Jesus says, you've actually taken the key away from others. You've not only not understood it correctly, but you've caused others to not understand it correctly. Legalism, in light of the grace of Jesus Christ, is an awful presentation of the gospel. It seems to say that you need Jesus plus something else. You need grace Plus, you need to be a really good person and you have to not swear and you have to not drink and you have to not smoke weed and you have to you have a list of things that you have to not do to enter into grace. When the reality is grace is what causes you to come into a right relationship with God and the only way that causes you to come into a right relationship with God and any presentation of the gospel less than that is faulty and dangerous. And then, having come into a right relationship with God, Jesus is saying, clean the inside and the outside by the power of the gospel. Become one who loves God and loves others and gives grace and extends mercy. And become one who is not swearing and not cheating and not lying and not stealing. Let the gospel change you. The gospel has changed me. Has it changed you? I am no longer that 13-year-old boy who is just trying to get someone to like me. I desperately want to present the gospel correctly and glorify Jesus. Well, after irritating the hypocritical leaders and identifying the hypocritical leaders and now insulting the hypocritical religious leaders, Jesus went away from there. 
In verse 53, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Jesus rebukes them publicly to their face. And the Pharisees begin to lie in wait, looking for some way to catch him, to trick him. They are hypocrites and living out their hypocritical nature of pretending to be something that they're not. I wish I could say that because of the grace of the gospel that this is no longer true. That Christ followers are no longer hypocritical and Christ followers love justice and Christ followers love mercy and Christ followers promote Christ instead of themselves and Christ followers don't love the seats of honor and Christ followers don't clean the outside of the cup. How many children have been disillusioned by the church because their parents cleaned the outside of the cup and tried to hide the fact that there was sickness and disease. The gospel is made for the sickness of sin and what's broken inside. Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and death and we can be gloriously victorious in our Christian life. I can be gloriously victorious in my Christian life. I began describing myself as two-faced backstabber turncoat, chameleon, hypocrite, and God has changed me dramatically. But I also described me as a pastor who's prone to tell you of my failings. Prone to declare that I need Jesus to change me and it's the gospel and only the gospel that's changed me. And I think there's a flaw in that. I think I'm, I need to be careful to not overstate the flaws that I struggle with without admitting the good things that the gospel has accomplished, that Christ has accomplished in my life. But I am fearful of failing you and God by not admitting that I am still desperately in need of the power of God to cleanse my insight. And I believe as your pastor and as your friend, it's my job to model humble repentance for sin. It's my job to model a constant growth and working towards overcoming. We have not arrived yet. There is so much to overcome. Sin should not take hold of us and it certainly shouldn't take hold of us because we are proud of who we've become and how much God has done in us. If God has accomplished great things in our lives, praise God. Give glory to God and don't hinder others from achieving that by acting like we deserved it more than them or that it was through our hard work. The truth is that the gospel is a free gift to us and it is available to every sinner, you and me and everyone else that's listening. God help us if we're hypocrites. By being hypocrites, we hinder people from getting to grace. The very thing that we've been left here for. Won't you join me in prayer and pray that God would forgive us for our hypocritical nature 
and that he would cleanse us from within and use us mightily in our neighborhoods. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, a younger version of me was quick to judge the Pharisees. But at this age and having seen my life, I see that I have such a long way to go. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the victory. Thank you for the sin that's been overcome. Thank you for making me a good dad and a good husband and a good friend and a good pastor. We give you all the glory for that. But Father, I pray for all of us that we would not settle and that we would not just clean the outside of the cup, but we would be a church, that we would be a people of God that come to you for inner cleansing and don't accept the anger and don't accept the hatred and don't accept that it's normative to un be unforgiving and proud. Would you create a clean heart in us and renew a steadfast spirit within us and restore to us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.